It's Friday, July 27th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Urban gardening is big these days, thanks in part to cooperatively owned community gardens that provide space for apartment dwellers and others in cities who would be otherwise unable to grow plants at home. Community-supported agriculture programs, or CSAs, are another way consumers can get hold of fresh, locally grown produce without needing direct access to a farm. Now, plenty of people would also like the option to buy clean, locally produced renewable energy, although that's not practical in most cases for people to produce themselves. But what if you could apply that community model to the electricity market? If you have large trees that shade your roof or you're in an apartment building or perhaps you just don't have that kind of capital available to you to invest in solar panels of your own, there's a way to kind of group all of those interested parties to still invest in community solar. Community solar projects have been tried in other states and have been wildly successful for the most part. Right now, the main thing holding Pennsylvania back from taking advantage of the model and having similar success is simply a lack of state laws that would be needed to authorize and regulate the practice. But that could soon change with legislation being proposed in the state capitol. Our in-house expert says if approved, it would mean a big step forward for clean energy. If we pass, let's say, legislation next year, I would say in five years from now, we'd see an uptick. And we could say a lot of that uptick was from community solar projects being developed. Tech's energy and climate policy advisor Alyssa Berger looks at the potential for community solar in Pennsylvania. That's coming up. First, something you won't often hear on this podcast, a call to action. The Federal Land and Water Conservation Fund is up for congressional reauthorization this fall. And right now, it's critical that lawmakers hear from citizens who benefit from it. And whether you realize it or not, that most certainly means you and pretty much everyone you know. Since its inception in 1964, the fund has provided more than $309 million for conservation and outdoor recreation projects just in Pennsylvania. This is money collected from offshore oil and gas drilling royalties. In other words, it's not taxpayer-funded. And over the years, it has helped secure clean drinking water supplies, protect wildlife habitat, improve parks and public green spaces, preserve historic sites, and lots more. In fact, those benefits are far too numerous to list in detail here. Although, of course, if you're interested, you can certainly delve into the data on the National Park Service website. We'll provide a link to that resource that lets you map those projects all the way down to the neighborhood level. Suffice to say, the Land and Water Conservation Fund has at one time or another touched virtually every community in Pennsylvania. In fact, odds are within the last week, you personally probably have used at least one public asset that relies on the fund. This is one of the most popular and arguably most successful federal programs in U.S. history. And yet almost every year, despite what is its explicitly stated purpose under the law, the fund nevertheless gets raided by Congress to pay for things unrelated to conservation. And it gets worse. Unless the fund is reauthorized by Congress this year, in fact, before the end of September 2018, the Land and Water Conservation Fund goes away forever. It's hard to overstate the impact that would have on Pennsylvania just from an environmental standpoint. However, it's worth noting that in a state that generates over $29 billion a year in consumer spending on outdoor recreation, the economic implications are also pretty substantial. All of these are reasons why, even if you never so much as set foot in a public park in Pennsylvania or anywhere else, 
This issue affects you. Over the next few weeks on the podcast and also on the PEC website and other venues, we're going to be learning more about the Land and Water Conservation Fund. We'll take you to a few of the special places in Pennsylvania that would be worse off or perhaps might not even exist without it. And we will ask you to get involved by contacting your elected representatives and simply letting them know your feelings on the reauthorization. We'll encourage you to go a step further by talking with friends, relatives, co-workers, and neighbors about this issue and urging them to speak out as well. You will find more background on the fund along with tools to help you connect with your representatives in the House and Senate on the PEC website. We're at PECPA.org. Legislation is brewing in the state capitol that would authorize the development of what are known as community solar energy projects. Now, a bill has yet to be introduced, but there is already a bipartisan coalition of lawmakers pushing the idea. PAC's Energy and Climate Senior Policy Advisor, Alyssa Berger, has been monitoring the discussion and joins us now. Hi, Alyssa. Hello, Josh. Start us off by explaining what exactly community solar is. In my mind, the analogy is to like a community garden space, maybe, where if you don't have the ability to plant a garden in your backyard, you can stake out a, a corner of, of a shared spot somewhere else, or maybe like a community-supported agriculture is, is a better analogy, but is that more yes. or less apt? Yes. In fact, sometimes presentations have referred to community solar as kind of a, a solar garden, if you will. So it's certainly allowing people to participate who wouldn't normally be able to do so. And just to kind of do a quick recap of what that means is When many people think of solar, they either think of the projects they see along the highway, which tend to be what we call ground-mounted systems, Mm -hmm, so large utility-scale solar projects or farms that tend to be out in rural areas. And those are great, and there's a way to connect that to community solar. So pausing there. And then the other way we think about it is a homeowner who has a house can call up a solar company and say, I would like to put solar panels on my roof. And those can either be bought outright or leased. And then you see those credits come back to you um, on your bill. And you're even able to kind of look at your meter readings and see how when solar is um, being produced, uh, how you can even sell that back to the grid. But if you don't don't have a roof that you can put panels on. Right. You know, as solar has become more and more ubiquitous in the popularity and it's become more mainstream and we've had some – deep discounts in costs as as hard costs and soft costs have fallen, there's this concept that sort of evolved called community solar where if you have large trees that shade your roof or you're in an apartment building or perhaps you just don't have that kind of capital available to you to invest in solar panels of your own, there's a way to kind of group all of those interested parties, whether they're small businesses, renters, or just people who don't have the right roof there on their property to still invest in community solar. And I think this is more than half of Pennsylvanians fall into that category. Right, exactly. So we need what's called enabling legislation to kind of build these community solar projects. Right now, we're not allowed to do community solar in Pennsylvania. 18 other states and the District of Columbia do have enabling legislation. And we're really seeing community solar flourish in those states because there's such an interest 
either driven solely by economic purposes or for climate-related reasons, more and more people are interested in having solar. So, for example, you know, I, I rent right here in Pittsburgh, and so I could choose, and this is getting into the wonkiness of Pennsylvania being deregulated, I could choose an EDC, an electric distribution company that then buys from an electric generation service group, an EGS, that sources just in-state renewable energy credits known as RECs. So another way to go about that is to kind of put money and capital into these large solar projects and then bundle a number of customers, whether residential or commercial, to pair that demand via community solar as a mechanism with large project development so that, in fact, we can build more renewable projects in Pennsylvania, certainly create jobs, and then also allow tons more Pennsylvanians to benefit, literally, from solar generation here in the state. In practical terms, what is preventing right now, preventing people that want to have a community solar installation from doing that? Is it just the law? Is it an an active proscription against that? Or is it just a lack of uh, framework to do it in? It's really just that enabling legislation. So right now it's it's just basically kind of illegal, not because anybody set out to ban it, but it's just the way that the legislation or the regulatory frameworks here in other states have been set up. Because a lot of times as it relates to electricity generation and then management of the electric power system, the kind of rules of the road were written so long ago that as technologies evolved and as what we call distributed energy resources, like solar on homes has become more prevalent, those rules don't always match up with the pace of technology. So it's kind of like cell phones, right? Oftentimes people compare the clean tech revolution to telecommunications and the fact that people don't have landlines anymore. So just like commercial pace, which is something that we've talked about on the podcast before, really what we need is just enabling legislation to be passed. We're not asking for a mandate. We're not asking the state to line item any budget dollars. This just would allow interested parties in pursuing community solar if they so chose. The enabling legislation would remove some legal barriers. That's it would right. kind of clear the way. Is that going to be enough? What else needs to happen? Like, for example, how, how do you finance a project like this? Right. So um, the way it works, and I would highly recommend for our listeners who are interested to check out a group called Vote Solar. They're a national group that's led a lot of the work on community solar, as well as SIA, which is the Solar Energy Industries Association based in D.C., but they work with all 50 states on solar. Once we have our enabling legislation in place, you can work with a group like Solar United Neighbors or a local project developer in and around your area. But what it allows us to do is some entity usually a nonprofit, but not always, might go out to local businesses or to a multifamily apartment building and say, hey, are you guys interested in purchasing those RECs, right? The Solar Renewable Energy Credits, SRECs. And so if there's enough demand for it, that kind of organizing entity can then go to a project developer and say, I have enough interest that's willing to commit to this project. You can go ahead and, and build the project because I can guarantee people will kind of buy, if you will, these credits. Now, it's not a total one-to-one. And so if you think about it, there is some kind of triangulation involved where you have the community solar participants or stakeholders, you know, in a way, they're kind of the upfront folks willing to say, we commit to you, the project developer, like build this solar. But then once the project's built, those electrons are really managed by the utility. 
um, or the electric distribution company. And then it's through your utility that they would kind of bill back a line item that's showing you your community solar generation. So it's not so dissimilar from um, what you'd see on your bill if you had solar in your house and we call that net metering. You know, if you're making more electricity than you're using, you can even kind of make money. So it's that same sort of concept. It's just more people are involved. And then those solar electrons, if you will, might be, I don't know, 50 miles away on some farmland as opposed to right there on anyone's property. I mean, it sounds like a lot of the tools are already in place or fairly easily accessible once the law is clarified, once the enabling legislation is in place, right? exactly right. So then how big could we expect this to become? How quickly might it scale up in Pennsylvania under those conditions? That's what I think is really interesting and it's right place, right time, where Pennsylvania is a large state and for anybody who's driven on the PA Turnpike, let's say, going from Pittsburgh to Pennsylvania, really as soon as you leave the city, you're kind of in a a rural environment. Pennsylvania has a ton of rural acreage. And so what's a really nice fit with this, and we'll touch on that in this solar roadmap draft report that's just come out, is farmers are interested in maybe hosting, let's say, a ground-mounted solar project on their land. But it can be built in such a way that they can still actually use most of their land for farming. And then that allows interested participants in and around that county or community to sign up for solar, which really means that I don't know kind of what the back of the envelope math is, but given how much land we have in Pennsylvania outside of large cities, I would say that there's a huge potential for community solar to really, you know, I'd say go up by several percentage points, if you will, in terms of electricity generated from solar in Pennsylvania. If we pass, let's say, legislation next year, I would say in five years from now, we'd see an uptick and we could say a lot of that uptick was from community solar projects being developed. The other angle on this maybe is that we have a mandate in Pennsylvania that we we need to be using at least a certain percentage That's right. of electricity by yes. is it 2030? Yeah, it's known as a renewable portfolio standard and right. in Pennsylvania it's the alternative energy renewable portfolio of which within that is a specific carve out target for solar and then that goes until 2021. Okay, so yeah. the other development in that area this year is that that now has to come from within Pennsylvania. Yes. Which is a big a big deal as yes. well. So those two things in mind, does this third piece get us a lot closer to that goal of producing a whole lot more solar in Pennsylvania? How big of an impact could we expect it to make? Yeah, I mean, it does and it doesn't. The interesting thing is that oftentimes when we talk about renewable energy and energy efficiency projects or um, available capital, up until recently, the, the main challenges have been barriers, things preventing us from even pursuing those projects. And what the Act 40 SREC decision does and things like enabling legislation for community solar is it removes those barriers, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee growth or forward movement, right? It's just scooting those those barriers out of the way. And so really then what has to come next is we have to have galvanizing parties, whether they're 
county governments, nonprofits, you know, agencies who are then driving demand and customer awareness and really going out and saying to citizens across Pennsylvania, hey, solar's not only possible, it might actually be economically beneficial for you, a customer, to do this, just on kind of the savings you would get from that kilowatt hour per cent setup, as opposed to your default utility rate. So I think that if we get these barriers out of the way, and we really are close to getting most of the barriers out of the way, it then will be very dependent, I think, on customer awareness, education, engagement, because when it comes down to it, money makes the world go round. And a lot of project developers are now in the clean tech business because there's money to be made. But they're not going to come into a market like Pennsylvania if they don't think that there's a demand, if they don't think they can aggregate customer interest and a commitment to those kilowatts generated or megawatts generated, they're not going to front capital. They're certainly not going to do it at a good rate. So I would say that as we start to change some of these regulatory frameworks and then pass some of this enabling legislation, really, I think it'll be a, what do they say, like a swimmer sink situation where market actors, both in and outside of Pennsylvania, are watching Pennsylvania And they're wondering, like, can clean energy flourish here, given these changes? So I think it's to be determined. But we, as policymakers and decision makers, are certainly taking the right steps to enable these things to happen. It sounds like there's every reason to think that community solar could really blow up in a big way in the next few years. So on the demand side, that seems pretty clear. But what about like on the technological level? You talked about how because of the way the grid is set up and also the way the laws are written – Utilities are still very much at the center of this. If you are running a community solar operation, you are feeding power back to the utilities. In a scenario where it's a whole lot more widespread, is the grid set up to accept all those kinds of inputs? Are there... Are there issues that we're going to have to confront along those lines? Could, like, community microgrids play a role here? Yeah. Here's the thing. The only states where we're kind of seeing a, like, uh uh-oh situation as it relates to the quantity of solar is in California, and there's something known as the duck curve problem, and I just encourage our listeners to Google that, or we can do it on a different episode. And then, you know, in a few places, I would say maybe Hawaii, they're also going to be confronting issues where so much solar, for example, in Hawaii was interconnected all at once. The utilities actually had to say, nope, we can no longer issue approvals for any more interconnected systems until we figure out how we, the utility, are going to manage those electrons. That being said, Pennsylvania is kind of We're not the worst, but we're not the best. We have so much room to grow as it relates to renewable generation. There was a study that was done with one of the national labs, Nettle, which is down in Morgantown and also here in Pittsburgh. So I think they used maybe 2011 EIA data, 2014 analysis. Less than 2% of Western Pennsylvania's electricity is generated from solar and wind. That's really, really, really slow, right? So Your points are very valid, and those are real concerns, because ultimately the grid is a very sophisticated machine, and if we make too many changes at once, we're kind of going to blow it up, like think of a, a smoking engine on a car type thing. But because Pennsylvania still has so few renewable projects on the grid in the state, we still could do a ton before we even have to kind of think about those issues. So Philadelphia, for example, they have something now called the Philadelphia Energy Authority. 
And that kind of municipal entity has done a lot of work kind of to your point in envisioning, you know, what can we do with microgrids now? What can we do with solar? Their water authority has a really cool solar project. They have something known as the Navy Yard where they have businesses like Anthropology and Urban Outfitters. Their headquarters are there and and they're doing a project now with um, a, a version of community solar. So there are so many possibilities and we are kind of I don't want to say behind, but right. there's so but, much potential and so well, like much a, room for growth. A duck curve situation would be, in some sense, a good problem for us to yes, have, that's exactly but we're not right. there yeah. yet. We're right. not there yet. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, and I think I've said this before on prior podcasts that we're kind of at a, a game changing moment for Pennsylvania. When the climate action legislation was passed back in, I want to say, 2007 or 2008, Act 70. We saw a lot of movement with wind farms being built in Pennsylvania and growth with solar. And then due to a number of things, changes at the state level as well as federal policy, Pennsylvania kind of, I would say, plateaued in some ways as it relates to the clean tech economy. And now what we're seeing because of some of these changes like Act 40, et cetera, we're really starting to pick up speed again. And because things like, as you mentioned, the AEPS expires in 2021 and we'll be able to renew that, we'll be able to potentially increase those targets. The 2018 statewide climate action plan is coming out this year as required by law. So there's a lot of things happening in Pennsylvania right now that if we can get them right, if we can kind of land those jumps as gymnasts do, we could see huge growth in terms of jobs and clean energy being generated. But there's still some in the weeds, some finer details we have to make sure we get right. Otherwise, it it might be a missed opportunity. It's a pretty exciting time to be in the middle of it, though, right? Yeah, I think so. I think for those of us working here in Pennsylvania and then the Mid-Atlantic region, a lot of cool stuff is happening, mainly because there's been such a quick evolution of technology that a lot of mainstream investors and other entities that are just kind of they have their business goggles on, this now makes business sense. And so as prices continue to drop, we're seeing a greater interest in clean tech simply because it's the more competitive way to now do business. On that point, as, as we know, DEP has been making plans for this transition right. in the form of the solar roadmap. How's that coming along? What's the status? Yeah, it's really interesting and exciting. So to rewind a little bit, Pennsylvania, DEP, and then partners, Penn Futures One, and then the Vermont Energy Investment Corporation, VEIC, won a Department of Energy Competitive Grant Award. And so that is funding work known as Finding Pennsylvania's Solar Future. So if you just Google that. Um, A page will come up within DEP outlining all of the stakeholder involvement and analysis that's been done. And really what that's doing, not unlike the electric vehicle roadmap that we've talked about, is it's trying to figure out what is Pennsylvania's solar potential in the near term. And this is good math to do, right? Like if you're building a house or you're planning a long trip, you should always kind of plan in advance. So that's what this effort is looking to do. And what's exciting is that The draft version of the report came out and became publicly available not too long ago, maybe two weeks ago. And what was really nice to see for those of us working in and around Pennsylvania is it actually garnered a lot of attention. So people were really, you know, I say impressed, but they said like, oh, wow, Pennsylvania put out this plan. They really want to take another bite at the apple, so to speak, as it relates to solar. There's a lot of great stuff in the plan, but 
basically, if you looked at the executive summary, what it's sort of saying is, and, and I mentioned this earlier, is that Pennsylvania has a lot of land, right? So if we can get community solar legislation passed, and then we can get capital, so dollars to invest and build these projects and pair that with customer demand, we have a vast potential, and it could be relatively easy. We just have to get the enabling legislation, and then we need to pair up that customer demand with interested project developers. And so even going back many more years, Penn Future had received what was known under the Obama administration as a Sunshot Award. This was a program within DOE to really spur market investment in solar. And so what Penn Future was charged with is how could we lower soft costs? So that's everything related to solar that doesn't have to do with the actual hardware, but the filing for interconnection, the wait times, all of these things. How can we lower those costs so that it's more attractive for people to pursue solar? So we made a lot of progress with that report. And, you know, since that time, which would have been back 2012, 2013, solar's continued to make a lot of progress. Prices just keep dropping. So the report is really exciting. You can just Google Finding Pennsylvania Solar Future. You'll find it on the DEP webpage. If you just even check out the um, executive summary, you'll kind of get the gist of what they're talking about. State Impact, which is an NPR affiliate, also did an article on it. So there's some great stuff out there. And then, you know, if you are really interested in how Pennsylvania is doing on solar, if you go to something called solarpowerrocks.com, they kind of do report cards for each state. And so, for example, Pennsylvania has an A as it relates to net metering, which is that concept we talked about where as you're making generating electricity from solar panels on your roof, depending on how much electricity you're using, the utility will pay you for that electricity generated, that surplus. So we have an A there. But for example, we have a C as it relates to the solar carve out in our renewable portfolio standard. And then on the incentive side, we have a few Fs as it relates to tax credits and some of those kind of wonkier financial mechanisms that when stacked together, make it really attractive for project developers. So there are many moving parts to this as there are to anything, but I would say that we're getting really close to having a ready and potentially robust solar market here in Pennsylvania. We just now need to attract capital and we need to get folks interested in the concept of buying or going solar via the solar renewable energy credits, SRECs, and they can do that if we can pass an enabling legislation for community solar. We'll post uh, all the resources that you mentioned yes. in the show notes as well as materials you can find on the PEC website yep. in the Energy and Climate Program section. Also, our standalone website for the Deep Decarbonization Initiative, which is at PEC-climate.org. Yes. And uh, we did a podcast episode just about a year ago with uh, several members of the uh, Solar Futures Working Group at DEP. And I would direct people back to that as well. Look for the link in the show notes for this episode. Alyssa Berger, Senior Policy Advisor for Energy and Climate at PEC. Thanks again. You're welcome. Anytime. That's all for this episode. Pennsylvania Legacies is a production of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, produced here in Pittsburgh by me, Josh Rollerson, with help from PEC staffers and our partners in other organizations and communities. As with everything else PEC does, this program is a collaborative effort. And uh, you're part of that collaboration as a listener. I want to thank you for tuning in for another episode and uh, ask you also 
to let us know what you think of it. If you've got feedback, we're very eager to hear it, either via the designated email address, which is legacies at pecva.org, or by way of any number of other communications channels we have set up, such as our Twitter feed at PECPA. We're also on Facebook as Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Our website, of course, is PECPA.org. There, there's lots more information on the work PEC is doing across the state in watersheds, in energy and climate, communities and landscapes, trails and recreation, and much more. And every single past episode of this podcast is also available to stream from the website, or you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, in SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Wherever you find us, take a moment, please, to rate and review and help other listeners find this program. We really do appreciate it. And again, drop us an email at legacies at pecpa.org with your suggestions for the show. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.